Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Chapters here on the Motorcycle Man Podcast. And joining me all the way from the Great White North, Mr. Nick Adams. How are you doing, Nick? I'm doing just fine, thanks, Ted. Yeah, how's the weather? Uh, it's cold. It uh, it crept up to just above freezing today, but wow. not enough to get me not enough to get me out on my bike. <laughs> and you're usually out there no matter what. But uh, I guess as long as the roads are clear, you'll go out. Right. Yeah, pretty oh, much. As long as as long as it's not too cold. All right. Well, so today we're here to talk about uh, your second book. Uh, we're going to pick a chapter out of that, and you've uh, selected, uh, I believe it's chapter five. Was it chapter five? You, you know what? In the book, they're not actually numbered. No, they're so not. Right. <laughs> um, I believe it is chapter five, and it was. Uh, well, you're you're going to tell me what the title of that chapter is. Okay, well, I can do that. It's Return to the North Road. Yes, that's it. Return to the North Road. By the way, I meant to tell you, I did look on Google Maps to try to find that, and I can't find it. Well, I can tell you where it, where it is, if you like. <laughs> okay. Uh, but first, before we get into that, uh, for, for those who are not familiar with your work and your books, why don't you tell everyone who you are and a little bit uh, about your motorcycle self? Okay, well, I'm, uh, I'm now retired, and uh, I spend my most of my waking moments thinking about motorbikes or motorbike trips or thinking about what I'm going to write about next. Um, I've written a number of short books about my motorcycle travels, primarily in Canada, but a little bit in the UK as well. Yeah. And um, I'm a bit of a nut about motor goodsies, but I've recently, or over the last few years, I've acquired some other bikes, an ugly great 1980s Suzuki Cavalcade, sort of the big brother of the Goldwing. Mm -hmm. And uh, my new, I won't say my best squeeze, but uh, a bike that I'm getting increasingly fond of is a 1960 Panther, which is an old British uh, single-cylinder slogger designed for hauling a sidecar around. Oh, I thought you were kind of fond of the Falcone, though. I was fond of the Falcone, but... um, it had a few little problems, which uh, I was neither skilled enough or interested in fixing. And <laughs> I'd acquired the Panther. And two single-cylinder bikes in the same household uh, seemed to, one too many. Okay. So I sold, I sold the newer for Falcone. Okay. So uh, on this particular uh, chapter that we're going to review, what bike did you use on this one? This is actually all about the newer Falcone. Oh, um, <laughs> speak of the devil. Yeah, a Moto Guzzi's, uh, Moto Guzzi for generations until the late 60s were famous for their single-cylinder bikes, right. all with a, with a horizontal single-cylinder engine. And this was one of the last they produced, a 500 single. Uh, 26 horsepower, I think. Um, top speed, ooh, if you're really on a good day, you might nudge it past 70 miles an hour. And notorious for being slow. Oh, okay. Well, but they, <laughs> they were designed for um, pretty much for the military and police. So they're industrial strength bikes, oh, okay. but but slow. Oh, well, you got to use it. Uh, so your, your book, Road, uh, now, per, excuse me if I mispronounced this, The Road to Misanabe. 
Wonderful. Oh, okay. All right. That's so, a score. <laughs> <laughs> so, now that chronicles some more of your motorcycle adventures, why don't you give us a brief synopsis of the book? Okay, well, um, there's a number of chapters, uh, two of which are about this trip up to northern Quebec. Um, other trips into northern Ontario on my 1972 Moto Guzzi Eldorado. Um, oh, gosh. Do you know what? I've forgotten about most of the other stuff that's in here. But I'll have to... <laughs> You're going to have to reread your own book. Yeah, a, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of little trips into northern Ontario and eastern Ontario on different bikes. Uh, some one of the things about my little motorcycle adventures is they always end in one, some kind of a disaster. I'm always having things go wrong. The points need cleaning. The plugs get cludged up, but it's part of the charm of riding old bikes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, motorcycles in the 1970s, you know, and it's quite a few years ago. So it's, it's you're going to have problems maybe. Yeah. And the, the key is to be uh, physically prepared with the right tools and such like, and more importantly, being psychologically prepared. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that if something goes wrong, you don't get into a big panic. Right. Exactly. Now, in this particular yeah. book, uh, what kind of challenges did you face in, in this book? Well, in the in the the, the first part of this uh, little adventure into northern Quebec, um, everything was going fine until I had a puncture. No big deal. I got a spare tube. So I'm, I'm on this. I, I should put this in context. Northern uh, Quebec is twice the size of Texas. Actually, it's 2.3 times the size of Texas. Yeah, so it's a little, a little big. It's a fairly big chunk of land, and the roads don't actually go all that far north. But the North Road is one of the most northerly of the roads in Quebec. It's uh, a 400-kilometer, well, that's sort of, what, 300 miles of gravel, Um and it basically starts off in a small community of uh, Shibugamu and ends up on the James Bay Road, which is basically nowhere. Because the James Bay Road is itself a 600-kilometer-long road um, that goes as far north as the roads go in Quebec. And that goes up to um, Hudson Bay, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, just up to the shores. Of, well, James Bay. is yeah. James Bay is the sort of teat on the end of Hudson's Bay. Sure. Uh, but it, yeah, it goes as far on that side of the bay as roads go. So I'm riding along. Everything's going fine. I have a puncture. No problem. I pull off the back wheel, fix it, ride on again. 20 miles later, I have another puncture. So I pull over, fix it, ride on, and then it happens again. And of course, I haven't got a puncture repair kit. And I, I subsequently, I found out that I there was a... Um, a wire that had gone through the wheel. Oh, gone through the tire casing, and I didn't find it when I checked the the inside of the the tire, as right. you do when you when you're doing these things. So there I am. Oh, I don't know, 270, 300 kilometers up this road, absolutely stuck. And to cut a long story short, I ended up meeting up with some people that had a satellite phone. And I called my friend Norm back down where I live, which is, what, about a thousand miles away. <laughs> hey, Norm, what you doing? <laughs> where are you? <laughs> so 
So anyway, he, he within a few within a couple of hours, he was on the road pulling the trailer and just drove straight up to to meet me wow. and pick me up. That's quite a friend. Yeah, it was a, a magnificent example of friendship. Yeah, wow. <laughs> but, over, but over the following winter, he wouldn't let it go. He, he said, you've got to finish that ride. Yeah. So in the end, we decided to ride up or to do that journey together. Oh, there you go. And this is, this is the second half of that trip. Oh, okay. Great. Uh, what was your favorite part of some of these rides? In your, is, it, is it the misadventures that you had during these rides? I, I must admit, I, whenever I return from a ride and nothing's gone wrong, I think, well, that was kind of pointless. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's not that I, I sort of relish the idea of things going wrong. It's just that they seem to be part of the adventure of, of going places and doing things. So I, um, I, I quite enjoy the thrill of uh, having to cope with something. And, and the fact that I called Norm to come and get me was a bit of a letdown in the sense I didn't sort of cope with the situation myself. So uh, uh, the return journey was a way of addressing that, shall we say. <laughs> now, the chapter we're going to review or that you're going to tell us about here is the chapter prior to this. You did have another puncture. And if I recall, you you filled your tire with something rather unusual. Oh, uh, that was yes. In the, that was the, during the first half of the uh, of this story. Before I ended up calling Norm, I'd been stopped and it was getting dark and I pulled off into a, a little side area where I could camp. And I'd read uh, somewhere or heard somewhere, maybe on one of the Adventure Rider forums, that you could stuff you in an emergency, you could stuff your tire with uh, branches and sort of fill it out, just sort of replace the tube with bits of vegetation. So I, I had a go at that. Uh, it lasted about oh, 20, 30 miles, maybe, and then got me to a place where I could could stop. Well, that's good. Yeah, no, it was okay. But I tell you, it makes a fantastic mulch. <laughs> I can imagine. So. But it still when felt I like got, you were riding on a flat tire, though, didn't it? It, it was, a, yeah, I should have, I perhaps should have chosen what I jammed it full of more wisely. Um <laughs> Uh, perhaps there was a bit too much give. I didn't. I didn't force enough material in, and it and it felt like a proper tire for a little while. But then it gradually got softer and softer. Yeah. And wow, that's pretty. Cool. Ne next thing you knew, I was slewing all over the road. <laughs> now, in this particular chapter that we're going to talk about, the road to missing no, 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 no. The chapter <laughs> return to the North Road. Return to the North Road. Now, in this particular chapter. Um, which which bike now? Th this for this particular chapter, you used the uh, the Falcone for this. You said back on the same bike, yeah. Okay. Now, is there anything of note we should notice about this particular chapter? Um, well, I mean, we were successful. We didn't have any disasters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Shakespeare in Love. Uh, a scene I, actually, in I am not. Oh, okay. Well, they, they, they're putting on this stage play, and, and of course, every time the little dog comes on the stage, it, scenes, it steals the scene. So in this particular chapter, there's a little bit talking about dogs. Okay. Which may steal the scene. 
And if I tear up at the end of the reading, don't be surprised. Oh, okay. I understand. Um, now, as far as goes for making of the audiobook, was it your intention all the way from the from the very start to make this an audiobook? No. Um, all of these have been written as uh, for a sort of publication through Amazon right. as either electronic books or uh, paperbacks. And I started doing the audiobooks just for fun, really, and then suddenly realized that uh, I, I really quite enjoyed doing it, yeah. and people seemed to like them. Yeah. So now, as far as, every... goes, well, as far as goes for the recording process, did you find it easier to just narrate the book yourself versus hiring someone to do it for you? I'm way too cheap to hire anybody <laughs> to do anything like that for me. <laughs> Was it difficult um, at first? I mean, did you find, were you a little uncomfortable with it at first? No, I, I, I grew up in a, a grammar school, well, went to school and grammar school in, in the UK. And one of the things that we had to do as, as a class was we take turns and reading out loud. Right. And being teenagers, most of the other kids had no interest in reading out loud. So I ended up doing a lot of it because I quite enjoyed it. Oh, you're so right. I just sort of t I tapped into that uh, t when I was doing the audio books. And I guess there's a certain tolerance of your own voice, too, that helps. Oh, I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs> well, that's good, you know. Because uh, I know there's some people who hate the sound of their own voice, especially yeah. their recorded voice, but it doesn't matter. Now, how long, when, from, from start to finish, how long did it take you to record this uh, this audiobook? Um, let me think. Probably, I would do it in, in chunks, uh, but each chapter would usually be about half an hour to record, right. half an hour to 40, 40 minutes to record, but then... You know, cutting out all the ums and ahs and the times that I mispronounce things and, and doing all the editing afterwards would usually be at least a couple of hours per chapter. Okay, so, that makes sense. You know, maybe a, a, if I worked at it 24 hours a day, it would be a couple of days. Okay. But, but I mean, I, you know, spread it out like a normal person would do it. It, it would probably take a few weeks, right? Yeah. The, the trouble is you, you want to maintain consistency of your voice. Oh, sure. And oh, yeah. if, if you've got a cold or a sore throat or something, you know, a, a, one chapter sounds okay, and then the next chapter you sound like a frog. That's not so good. <laughs> no, we can't have that. <laughs> but it sounds good, although from start to finish, I, I always enjoy your books. Um, oh, thanks. Now, tell our listeners what they're about to hear in this chapter. Well, you're about to hear the, as I say, the, um, the return journey up to the North Road and... Um, with Norm this time. I took the cavalry. Uh, Norm's a very good mechanic, so uh, I, I figured this time we'll ride it together, and if anything goes wrong, he's right there to help me. Um, so there's a little bit of description about uh, uh, about the environment. There's a little bit of in description of, of, uh, of, you know, the places we went to and, and some, you know, we went to one native community uh, in order to get gas and had a little enjoyable time there. Right. And uh, unfortunately, on the way up, my uh, I heard from my wife, my, my phone rang in my, in my uh, tank bag, and I heard from my wife that my dog was having trouble. Oh, so while I was riding, I was always thinking about what's happening to the dog, and that, that uh, comes into the story, too. Oh, wow. So, okay. So listeners are able to get their heart tugged on a little bit. Uh, not too much, I hope, but uh, uh, yeah, as I say, if I, if I sound a little bit choked at the, at the end, don't be surprised. All right. 
Uh, now, be- before I let you go, tell us about some of the uh, the other books that you currently have in publication and, and audiobooks that uh, folks can catch up on. Well, all my all my books, uh, is it five or six now? I can't remember, um, uh, about motorcycling uh, are available through Amazon. Uh, the first one was called Beyond the Coffee Shop, which was a little jab at the people with their fancy bikes who never actually go anywhere. <laughs> on them. I rather enjoyed uh, that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the most recent one is called uh, um, Do It While You Still Can. Yes. Because um, how, how long was it? five years ago now, I had uh, triple bypass surgery. Yes. And things like that tend to make you conscious of the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm not a teenager anymore, despite the way I try to behave. And you know, if, if there are things, if there are things you want to do, then you best get on it and do them. Yes. Behavior While, and uh, thought are usually significantly uh, years behind the actual age. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. You know, at our age, or my age at least, your knees start to go, your hips give you trouble, your, oh, yeah. ba- your breath gets short. Um, and if you've got things on your agenda that you, you'd like to do, don't put it off till tomorrow. You know, tomorrow may never come. Just get on it and do it. This is true. So now your books are Beyond the Coffee Shop. Uh, this particular book we're working on, our Road to Missanabe. Then you have yep. Beyond the Bypass. And yes. El Dorado to the Klondike. Which yes. pretty much encompasses all your use on the Eldorado. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, writing during the time of the plague. And then do it while you still can. And you do have some other books as well that are outside yep. of the motorcycle vein. Can you tell us about those? Uh, the first one I wrote was a sort of uh, bio about my working life in archaeology, both in Britain and in Canada. Um, it's a sort of personal journey. Um, with some stories about some of the things that we did and the sure. places we went and the things that we found. It's, you know, if, <clears throat> pardon me, if you're interested in, uh, in archaeology or the processes of archaeology, then uh, I like to think it's an interesting read. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, second one I, is called, uh, actually, I'm English. Or is it British? I can't remember. Gee, <laughs> it's English. actually I'm English. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, which is a series of, of chapters about hiking, long distance hiking in Britain with a couple of motorcycle trips thrown in. Um, long distance hiking is something I've always enjoyed doing. Yeah. And uh, uh, I enjoy, as I, you know, I enjoy writing about all the things I do. So putting that book together was a lot of fun. And again, people seem to like that yeah. uh, if they have any interest in hiking in Britain. And then more recently, I've uh, just written a couple of um, ghost novels um, using archaeology and archaeological work as the overall structure within which they're working, sort of flying off in a tangent about, uh, well, things that might happen if such things existed. Right. And, uh, yeah. and, the, and, and, the, way, and the, the way the world might unfold if... if you were suddenly to encounter ghosts in the course of your work. The the first one is, let's say, charming. And, <laughs> charming. <laughs> the second the second one is a lot darker. The second one's based on actually it's based on a historical account of um, cannibalism during the late 18th century up in northwestern Ontario, 
um, basically a bunch of fur traders ran out of food over the winter and started eating one another. Oh, oh and that... <laughs> wow. Okay. My, my protagonists end up uh, meeting with them in their, in their ghostly state, which isn't all that bloody ghostly. Let me tell you, they, yeah. uh, <laughs> they, they, uh, they have they have physical presence and they're not to be messed with. So that so and, it's that, lot, and the title of that book is I'm not even going to try to say it. Evil at Lac the Mort. Oh, okay, that was a little, a little easier than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> so you've you're, you, you've penned quite a few books here, and but for this particular case, we're going to be listening to a chapter uh, off of uh, Road to Misanabe, and. Uh, I hope everybody enjoys this. We're gonna, this again. This book is available. All your books are available on Amazon, of course, from yep. your website, and on Audible.com. Yep. Did you did you uh, narrate uh, do audiobooks for your two fiction novels? Uh, yes, I did. You did. Yep, so did. so everything you've you've written so far is available in audio book format. That's right. Yeah, I made the mistake of using my full name on the uh, the novels on the fiction. I see that. So they were. Right. They're actually under Nicholas R. Adams, which sounds, you know, far more sort of serious and professional. <laughs> Does anybody buy that, though? Nobody buys it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right. No, there's, there's no film crew lining up outside to take the rights or anything like you that. You never know. I mean, I, I think I think both of them have, have great potential to become some sort of a, uh, you know, what do, you, what do they call those kind of thrillers? A, a is like a suspense thriller kind of a movie. Yeah, yeah. that's it, right. Yeah, I like them, but like, uh, oh, that's all that matters, right? That's <laughs> all that matters. That's all that yeah. matters. All right, Nick. Thank you very much for joining us and uh, giving us this little preview of this chapter we're about to listen to. Okay. All right, you take care of yourself, and we'll talk to you again soon. We'll have you back on for your next book in a little while. All right. That would be wonderful. Okay, sir. Good night. Good night. Chapter 5. Return to the North Road. Almost a year had passed since my ignominious rescue from the North Road. Norm had gained minor celebrity status for his heroic and selfless manic drive north while I got labelled as the poor sap, too stupid to pack a puncture kit. Back home, I'd removed the tyre, poured out the finely ground mulch which was all that remained of the branches and twigs I'd used as an ersatz tube, and discovered a tiny staple protruding from the inner case of the tyre. It didn't seem like much, and indeed, I'd managed to overlook it twice while trying my repairs on the road but it had been enough to puncture two tubes. Even though I'd ridden the fully loaded bike many miles over rough gravel with it virtually flat, the tyre seemed perfectly fine. There were no belts protruding from the casing, the side walls seemed to have decent strength, it looked perfectly normal. At the time I'd been sure it was ruined. Had I thought there was some possibility that I could have ridden home on it, I would have been looking for a puncture repair kit and not a bothered norm at all. But hindsight, as they say, is twenty twenty. Over the winter, the North Road came up in conversation many times. 
Norm was determined that we should go back and complete the journey, if for no other reason than to save the poor old Nuo for Falcone's dignity. He'd bought my son Sam's Kawasaki Versus, and had done some of the usual Norm fixes and upgrades, including fitting some dual-sport tyres. Now all we needed was for the days to tick by on the calendar. I'd been vacillating about the trip. Even under normal circumstances, Norm is a faster rider than I am. And the Falcone, not to put too fine a point on it, is a slug. Although he assured me that he would be happy to ride at any pace I set, I wasn't feeling comfortable about having him breathing down my neck on the long highway hall up to northern Quebec. Once we were on the north road, things would be fine, as the road surface sets the speed of travel more than the bikes. In the end, we opted to ride up separately and meet in Amos, after which we would make our own ways to Matogamy, then ride the Lower James Bay Road and the North Road together, before making our separate ways home. I'd like to take credit for the brilliant compromise, but I can't. It was Norm's idea. Spring was slow in coming. We both had work and family commitments, which meant it was mid-May before we could head out on the road. Both bikes had been packed, unpacked, and packed again many times, just to keep our minds occupied as the days passed. Not surprisingly, Norm's packing was more elegant than mine. Mine was the usual rat's nest of waterproof bags, old military canvas tool bags and jerry cans, all held on with bungee cords and elastic netting. My dog's saddlebags were drafted into service and strapped across the passenger seat, each side containing a 5-litre fuel container to supplement the 10-litre jug on the rear rack and the fuel in the main tank. This time, I was packing two spare tubes, a patch repair kit, a pump and all the necessary tools. I was determined not to get stuck. I followed my usual and favourite route north through rural eastern Ontario, across the Ottawa River and the lovely hilly country of the Udaways region up to Maniwaki. Just before Calabogie, I slowed to a crawl and let a porcupine waddle across the road. When he didn't seem to be in any hurry to get away from the road, I stopped the bike and took pictures until he disappeared into the cedar bush. Sadly, porcupines are a common roadkill. Their defensive strategy of stopping and turning their backs to danger is rather counterproductive in a world of cars and trucks. Things were going well. The bike was making its usual cacophony of rustling cogs and rattling tappets. There was air in the tyres, and I was managing to find a gear or two whenever I needed it. I was just about to pull into a gas station, when from deep within my tank bag, my phone began to ring. It's amazing how long it can seem to take to steer the bike to the curb, remove gloves, unzip compartments, the wrong one first of course, then dig out the phone from the mess of camera bits and miscellaneous charging cords. I was sure I was going to miss the call. Hello? Hello Nick, I think Casey's had a stroke. Casey was our 13-year-old cantankerous German shepherd. Her head's cocked to one side and she can't stand up. She's okay, but a bit confused. Was this going to be the end of my trip so soon? It wasn't even lunchtime of the first day. Casey's life had been full of love and adventure, and she was with people she loved and trusted. 
I decided that since Chris and my eldest son Sam were clever, kind and capable people, there was little I could do to help that they couldn't manage on their own. They would call the vet and see what could be done. With a heavy heart, I carried on. Not far north of Manawaki, Highway 117 enters a vast area of lakes, forested hills and rocky outcrops. I'd been rather dreading this section. The road is broad and fast with sweeping bends, numerous steep rock cuts through all the sides of the hills, and many long, long hills. On a modern bike, it's a relaxing ride, where keeping one's speed down to the general vicinity of the speed limit is the biggest problem. On the Nuovo Falcone, I could usually only reach the speed limit on the downhill stretches. On the uphills, my speed would drop dramatically. Changing down made little difference. If the bike had decided it was a 45 mile an hour hill, that's the speed it would climb it, no matter what tunes you tried to play with the gears. If the shoulder was paved, I'd usually move over enough to let speedier drivers pass, but once again, I was reminded of how polite Quebec drivers can be. I never felt hurried. About halfway through the Lavarandre Park, I pulled over in a rest stop for a bit of a break and parked next to a still lake. Casey was on my mind. If she'd been there with me, she would have been up to her belly in the water in no time. She loved to wallow, and if the water was black with mud and muck, so much the better. I called Chris to see if there was any news. According to the vet, Casey's condition was probably idiopathic vestibular disease, a common condition in older dogs that causes balance trouble, head tilting, and general disorientation. There were drugs available that might help, and the wait-and-see approach was recommended. It wasn't necessarily the end of the line, and she almost certainly hadn't had a stroke. Much relieved, I carried on. Before her hips began to fail her, she'd been a constant work companion, keeping guard to make sure we weren't disturbed by squirrels or chipmunks. Whenever she travelled with my crew in the van, she would excitedly yodel all the way to wherever we were going, which could get a bit tiresome on a long trip. Mysteriously, she always knew when we were on the way home. She would find a spot to curl up and would sleep soundly the whole way and never utter a peep. She was well used to hotels and motel rooms and was a perfect house guest. As soon as we entered the room, she would lie down, usually between the beds, and hardly move until next morning. Somehow, she knew to relax and be quiet. During supper, we usually put her in the van, which she regarded as a portable dog kennel, rather than leaving her on her own in the hotel room. Returning from supper once, somewhat boisterously after a few beers, we forgot to put her on the lead as we raced into the hotel to avoid a rain shower. Casey was in the lead as we turned a corner in the corridor, so the first thing the poor young man coming from the other direction saw was a hundred-pound German shepherd heading his way, ears erect and full of menace. Not exactly what you expect to see in a comfort inn. I often thought Casey would make a fine police dog. She was fearless and had a way of greeting the world head-on. So instead of passing by, she headed straight for the terrified guy. We all shouted, Casey! at the same time, which can't have done much to ease the poor fellow's distress. Fortunately, she got the message, and instead of biting him, 
which I'm sure is what she would have preferred to do, she meekly headed down the corridor to our room. As arranged, I met Norm in Amos and we headed out to the municipal campground at the edge of town. I know many people can only take their vacations at certain times of year when everyone else is also on the move, but they really do miss some delightful experiences. The site offered 106 campsites, but if there was anyone there other than the friendly manager, we certainly didn't see them. We had the place to ourselves. After an average chicken dinner in a restaurant in town, we settled in with a couple of cans of beer before crawling into our sleeping bags. Since the 115 mile run up to Matogamy is a well-paved, fast road, we opted to rendezvous at the gas station in Matogamy and ride at our own pace. Norm set off just ahead of me and I lingered to take a picture of an enormous pile of logs in the yard of a pulp mill, so I assumed he'd be twiddling his thumbs for hours before I arrived. He might not have been strictly telling me the truth, but he assured me that he'd only got to Matogamy about 20 minutes before me. Somewhat encouraged, and now with full fuel loads, we set off north, with me in the lead setting the pace. I needn't have worried about holding Norm back. We were barely past the James Bay Road sign-in building, when the paved road surface suddenly changed to fresh, loose gravel. On these surfaces, the Nuovo Falcone is a match for almost any bike, especially one like the Versus, with its paved road-oriented 17-inch front wheel. Norm is a better gravel rider than I am, but I didn't notice any inclination for him to go sailing by, as both of us had our hands full just staying upright. The gravel section didn't last long, and soon enough we were humming along over the rough and frost-heaved pavement of the James Bay Road. It's about 170 miles until the turn-off at the North Road. 170 miles with no services, no houses, and other than the road itself and a couple of rest areas, virtually no signs of human life, and just spruce and birch forest as far as the eye can see. As usual, we stopped for a break at the Rupert River, about 160 miles north of Matogamy, and about 12 miles south of the junction with the North Road, where we were immediately greeted by a whiskey jack, who flitted about silently, hoping for a handout. The rapids weren't as impressive as I've seen them. Folks in New York State must have had their air conditioners turned on already, siphoning up the power from Quebec Hydro, which diverts much of the water through its generating plants. Nevertheless, even with only scenic water, they are still plenty vigorous, and no place to find yourself in a canoe. A short ride further on brought us to the junction with the North Road, where the road sign indicated 424 kilometers to Shibugamu. Other than a gas pump and limited services at Camp Nemeskau, 72 miles down the road, there were no other services unless you ventured the six miles off the main road to the Cree village of Namaska. We checked our fuel supplies and found we had more than enough to get us to Namaska. A tiny amount of snow lingered in the crevices on the higher hills, but we were untroubled by weather or cold. An enormous forest fire had burnt off all the trees on the surrounding hills, leaving exposed rock and low shrubs on the tops 
and dark patches of unburned spruce trees in the valleys. I'm using the word hills loosely here. The glaciation in this part of Quebec was so relentless that the terrain has been more or less ground flat. Only the most resistant rocks withstood the miles of grinding ice. So when I talk about hills, I actually mean the few higher bits which stand out from the otherwise flattish plain. That all makes it sound a trifle boring, but to me, it's anything but. Everywhere you look, there are ponds, swamps, rivers and lakes, completely devoid of any visible signs that anyone has ever touched the waters. It's not true, of course. Cree people and their ancestors have been living in the region for thousands of years and know all its secrets well. But their impact on the land has been slight. Decent views are rare, but once in a while the stunted trees along the road margin will open up, exposing a vast, empty landscape rolling off into the far distance. And the air. Near the road it's tainted with the smell of gravel dust thrown up by the occasional passing vehicle. But away from the road, it's crisp, clean and pure, with just a hint of pine. It fills the lungs, and they're happy for it. The gravel road surface was well maintained, with relatively few large potholes, so we were able to roll along at a comfortable speed, riding on the hard-packed areas and doing our best to avoid the deep, loose gravel which piles up in the curves. I was doing my normal thing of stopping from time to time to fiddle with the video cameras or snap a picture of the scenery or the heroic riders. Norm didn't ever object. He would sit quietly on his bike, seemingly content and comfortable. The Nuovo Falcone is at its best on roads like this. Its limited top speed is no impediment and its soft suspension and sprung seat provide a surprisingly luxurious ride, even when the road is rough. Most of the time Norm would hang well back, as my bike was throwing up plenty of gravel dust. But from time to time he would go past so that I got a chance to choke. Eventually we reached the turn-off to Namaska. The road had been freshly graded with a new skim of gravel over numerous soft spots and potholes. So we took it easy during the dusty ride into the village. The gas station was one of the first buildings we encountered, consisting of two pumps on a gravel and concrete pad, in front of a rather slick-looking new building with an entranceway built in the shape of a teepee. It was serve yourself. As we pumped the fuel, we were kept busy answering a steady stream of questions from the folks at the other pumps. Forget any nonsense you've heard about First Nations people being reserved or uncommunicative. Just about everyone we met wanted to know where we were coming from and where we were heading. I suspect that very few motorcyclists riding the North Road take the time to visit Namaska. It's their loss. With full fuel tanks, we headed over to the restaurant and the shopping center. It too was a new building, its architectural style matching the gas station and the community center across the road. As we parked our bikes next to a row of large, dusty pickups, I noticed a dog lying in the middle of the road. At first, I thought it was dead, but then I saw an ear twitch. It didn't seem bothered by the occasional truck that drove around it, 
and it was still happily sleeping in the same spot when we returned to the bikes half an hour later. The restaurant wasn't fancy, but there was fresh coffee and the menu offered the usual mix of sandwiches, chips and pizza. As we waited for our food, I noticed a couple of ladies looking surreptitiously in our direction while chatting in Cree. I caught the eye of one of the women and smiled, as it was obvious that we were the focus of their discussions. So how do you know I don't speak Cree? You don't, do you? She answered with an awkward grin. No, but I wish I did. We both laughed. As Norm and I ate our lunch, we had regular visitors. Each new person to enter the restaurant would walk in, see us, and then just pull up a chair at our table and start to talk. It was usually the same old questions. Where are you from? Where are you heading? What kind of bike, etc.? But it was relaxed and charming, and made us feel comfortable and welcome. The ride from Namaska back to the North Road, then on to the northern Rupert River crossing, passed quickly and uneventfully. The Nuovo Falcone continued to chug relentlessly along. The air stayed where it was supposed to, on the inside of the tyres, and despite a few squirrely moments on the loose gravel, the riding was easy. The biggest problem was the dust. Any passing vehicle would throw up such a cloud of fine powder that unless you'd memorised the road ahead, you could be lost for a few seconds. We decided to camp at the rest area where the road crosses the Rupert River, the same place that I'd been stuck and from which Norm had rescued me the previous year. I don't think you're really supposed to camp at these rest areas, but nobody minded the first time around, and no one minded this time either. For old time's sake, I erected my tent in exactly the same spot as the previous year, while Norm chose a position a little closer to the water. You might think that the sound of the water roaring down the rapids just a few yards away would be intrusive, but we both slept well. As we were packing up the tents in the morning, I noticed some old wolf scat quite close to where we'd been sleeping, and some more recent bear scrapes in the pathway near the picnic table. Nature had left us undisturbed, however. There were hardly even any insects to taint our enjoyment. Our evening meal had consisted of a few granola bars, a bit of beef jerky, and a few mouthfuls of bottled water, and breakfast wasn't much better, so we were both eager to get on the road in the morning, as we had about 160 miles to ride before we could get anything more solid to eat. As we packed up the tents, two whiskey jacks dogged our every move, flitting around looking for scraps on silent wings, or peeping quietly to each other. I subsequently read that Whiskey Jacks pair for life. These two were definitely a team. They did everything together, including using my windscreen as a perch while scanning the ground below looking for any crumbs that we may have overlooked. I must admit, we did throw them some extra crumbs. It was so delightful to have their cheerful, fearless company. Overnight there'd been a little rain, and it was still misty and damp in the morning. The rain had been just enough to dampen the road surface. For the rest of the journey to Shibugamu, we were untroubled by dust, although there was still some ice on some of the lakes we passed, and it was just as well that we had our cold weather mitts. Being connoisseurs of fine dining, Norm and I swung into the parking lot of Tim Hortons, and as we sat eating our breakfast sandwiches and drinking some well-earned coffee, 
it started to rain again. Now that we were back in the world of paved roads, Norm was eager to head for a campground in Latouk, about 300 miles to the south, and set off while I was still getting myself sorted and refueling. Initially, I intended to head there too, but at my slower pace. But just outside of Shibugamu, I saw a sign for Highway 113 to Senter, and on a whim, swung southwest. The rain stopped after a few miles, and soon the road was dry, save for a few small puddles and damp spots on the paved surface. Some might think this road is boring. It goes on for mile after mile through the endless forest, with only the occasional curve or glimpse of a lake to break the rhythm. Occasionally a car or truck would race by me and disappear into the distance. But most of the time I had the road entirely to myself, with no other vehicles in sight, and just the gentle rumble of the Nouveau Falcone and the rustle of the wind to keep me company. After about an hour and a half, I reached the edge of the village where a large sign bid me welcome to the Cree First Nation of Waswanipi. The gas station was just past the municipal garage workshop, across a large expanse of gravel. I pumped my fuel, then went into the store. There were a number of young women and some chubby kids inside. The attractive girl behind the counter said, Can I get a ride on your bike? I'm sorry, but the passenger seat is covered in camping gear and stuff, I said, feeling rather chuffed that she wanted me to take her for a spin. No, I mean on the front. I want to ride your bike. Oh, sorry, no. I hope I didn't look too crestfallen as I paid for my fuel and resumed my journey. It always comes as a bit of a shock to be reminded that I'm just an invisible old bloke these days and not the young, attractive chap I feel inside. The miles droned by, and before long I was working my way through the rain-soaked streets of Valdor, the city of gold. Valdor is a sprawling mining town, and I was in no mood to stop and savour its delights. I'd stopped briefly to put on my rain gear when the first drops came down, and was glad I had. As I circumnavigated the series of roundabouts towards Ruan Naranda, it was coming down in torrents. Just on the outskirts of Valdor, I slopped into a gas station and, using my non-existent French, struggled to ask if there was a motel nearby. By good fortune, the young lad behind the counter spoke very good English, and after consulting with everyone else in the room, told me that the options were either to go back or ride the 60 miles on to Ruan Naranda. I plugged on. Eventually the rain stopped, but it had taken all the heat out of the day, such as there had been. By the time I got to the outskirts of Ruan Naranda, I was well chilled and my eyes were a mess. For the last few miles I'd been riding without a face shield. I liked the feel of the wind on my face and there were no annoying insects to clog up my eyes, but I paid a price. For some reason, the cold air causes my eyes to water and develop painful little blisters. I stopped at the first hotel I encountered. I must have looked a disturbing sight to the young lady behind the counter, with my salt-stained cheeks and red and bulgy eyes. I paid an outrageous price for what, I have to admit, was a warm and pleasant room, and settled in. My room had a large sliding door which opened onto the parking lot, so I was able to park the bike just outside. 
Following the old cowboy rule of seeing to the horse first, I did my normal day-end checks before feeding myself. I checked the oil, tires, spokes, and had a quick look round for any loose bolts or fraying cables, but everything seemed fine. There were a couple of shiny Harley trikes in the parking lot, whose owners were unloading their gear into their room. I may as well have been invisible. They had no curiosity whatsoever about the rain-streaked, dusty old bike parked opposite. Mind you, I had no interest in their shiny toys either, so fair enough. It was well below freezing in the morning, but I was up and moving with the daylight. My rain-sodden gloves had dried out nicely overnight, so for a few miles at least my hands stayed temperate. There are few things I like better than being up and on the road before the world awakes. The roads are empty, the light casts long entrancing shadows, and the day feels pure and reborn. Within a few miles I was rolling along through well-tended farmland, past neat modern bungalows with manicured lawns. This part of Quebec wasn't settled until the beginning of the 20th century, so lacks the architecturally interesting buildings that dot the landscape east of Montreal. Nevertheless, it was refreshing to see how neatly the farms and private houses were kept. It was quite a contrast to the corresponding parts of Ontario, where broken snow machines and wheelless trucks up on blocks are de rigueur. As I was humming along, I noticed a sign pointing to a covered bridge, just a mile or so off the paved road. The little side road was a delightful mix of tractor ruts and loose muddy gravel, but after a slowish ride I arrived at the bridge, crossing a small stream in a quiet sheltered valley. I switched off, and other than a little bird song and a whisper of breeze in the trees, there was no other sound. I spent a long time just watching the slow water flowing by, creating little eddies beneath the bridge. I played around with the camera for a while, taking selfies of me riding through the bridge with the camera sitting on a post, before heading back to the main road. Mist was still rising from some of the ponds and lakes along the way, and grass was tipped with frost in the low-lying areas. But as the sun climbed further into the sky, Warmth started to ooze back into my chilled body. I'd long ago ceased to worry about the Nuovo Falcone's reliability. It just plodded along, making all the normal happy noises. On one long straight, I opened the throttle wide and watched the GPS in amazement as the bike gradually crawled all the way up to 70 miles an hour before I chickened out and reverted to a saner speed. The bike hadn't seemed to mind, and barely sounded any different to when it was cruising at 55. At the bottom of Lake Temiskaming, I crossed back into Ontario to follow the western shore of the Ottawa River. During a previous early spring ride on my Breva 1100, I'd ridden the winding Highway 533, which cuts the corner off to Madawa, and was eager to ride it again. Motorcyclists often say it's more fun to ride a slow bike fast than a fast bike slow. What they really mean is slowly, but I'll let that pass for now. Since the Nuvo Falcone definitely counts as a slow bike, I was curious to see whether this applied. 533 is one long string of curves, 
with just enough straight sections to add a bit of variety. It's no dragon. The famous stretch of 318 curves in 11 miles bordering the Great Smoky Mountains and the Cherokee National Forest. But with numerous sweeping curves and frost heaves and a regular rough pavement, there's plenty to keep the mind alive. One of the unexpected things about the Nuovo Falcone is that its handling vastly outstrips its power. The frame was designed by Lino Tonti, architect of the famous Tonti frames, which give the Moto Guzzi V7 Sport and Le Mans motorbikes their legendary stability. You can throw the NF into corners with confidence. Because the Nuovo Falcone doesn't have the power for great bursts of speed between the corners, the game becomes one of seeing if you can maintain a good speed at all times, especially round the bends. This can get a bit hair-raising when you race into a corner only to find out that the frost has fractured the road surface and gravel and bits of tarmac are lying around where the pavement should be, and your brakes are marginal at best. Riding like this gives a great sensation of speed and risk, even though I doubt whether I edged over the posted speed limit more than a couple of times. Still, it was great fun, and helped me develop huge confidence in the bike. The first time I'd ridden the long slog home along Highway 17, I'd been a bit surprised to see how much speed I lost on the long uphill sections. Since that time, I changed the rear sprocket, raising the gearing, and installed new valves and valve guides. The bike still quickly runs out of puff on the hills, but the higher gearing means that third gear is now perfect for these long hills, and I found I could maintain a steady 50 miles an hour on all but the steepest inclines. Other vehicles still went flying by, but I no longer felt as though I was riding a moped. Eventually, I left the long rolling hills of the Ottawa Valley and headed south through the Madawaska Highlands towards Eganville and home. I've ridden this stretch of roads so many times that the memories all blend together. But I'm sure I stopped at the public rest area at Tui Lake for a pee. The local authority recently built a fine set of pit toilets, but I always park by the lake shore and sprinkle the cedar bushes. There's never anyone around, so it's not as if I'm making a public spectacle of myself. The last hundred miles rolled by effortlessly as afternoon turned to evening, and the sun cast long shadows again, this time from a different direction. The Nuovo Falcone chuffed away inexorably, eating up the miles in a most satisfying manner. My route home passed Norm's house, so I quickly stopped to see if he was home. He'd stayed the night in Latouque as planned, then ridden home, arriving only minutes ahead of me. As I wheeled the bike into my garage, I gave it a quick check over, noticing a slight dribble of gravel-soaked oil on the engine case. I eventually managed to figure out that this was just a bit of lubricant from the clutch cable. The engine had barely used any oil, had remained completely oil-tight, and started first kick every time. More to the point, all the air had stayed on the inside of the tyres. Riding a slow, underpowered, 42-year-old, single-cylinder Italian motorcycle over 1,700 miles in four days, 250 miles of which were on gravel, may seem like an exercise in self-abuse. But in fact, the bike rolled along uncomplainingly and its rider stayed remarkably comfortable. 
Norm was right to bully me into returning to the North Road. I know it would have eaten away at me if I'd left the job undone. I didn't get my usual ebullient greeting from Casey on my return. She could no longer stand and could barely turn her head. Manhandling a limp, a hundred-pound German shepherd down a flight of stairs for a nature break is not an easy task, but she never complained or struggled, even when our efforts were clumsy. After a few days, it was clear that she was failing fast. With great sadness, I carried her to my van for one last trip to visit her great friend, Dr. Julia, our vet. Although her last moments remain with me, I prefer to remember her lying close by while I fiddled with the motorbikes, wandering the fields and woods with her while we worked, wrestling with her, her jaws clamped on my arm, or sprawled on the couch, her feet smelling deliciously of corn chips. She was an obstinate, difficult, quirky, wonderful dog, and I miss her terribly. Thank you for joining me and Nick on the Motorcycle Man podcast in this segment of Chapters, where we heard a chapter from The Road to Misanabe. Now, you can learn more about Nick's books by going to nickadamswritings.com, and there you can get a copy of his book. And if audiobooks are your thing, head on over to audible.com, and you can find an audio version of his books there as well. Links will also be in the show notes and, of course, on the Motorcycle Man website. Hey, don't forget to head on over to the Motorcycle Men YouTube channel and watch some of those many videos we have there, including the Ted Shed and Ride with Ted videos. They are actually on the Ride with Ted YouTube channel now. So don't forget, you can also support the podcast by buying us a cup of coffee. That's right. So head on over to the website and click the link on the landing page to buy us a coffee to help us out and help the podcast. Hey, for the rest of the Motorcycle Men team, thanks for listening. And remember, boys and girls, we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Ride safely, kids.